0: Learning to love ourselves and our messy and complicated truth is hard enough. But what happens when you have that feeling of otherness just hanging over your head, where you don't feel understood even within your own tribe? How do you confidently grow into your own skin, or maybe even grow out of it, when the road to acceptance and healing is so rough and bumpy? Hey there, it's Zach. Welcome back to In The Deep, Stories That Shape Us. I hope you've been able to catch our past episodes, especially part two of our conversation with Leon Ford. If you haven't checked it out, I really, really recommend it. It's the powerful story of a man that is shot by the police, left paralyzed, but uses his experiences to help mend the relationship between the police and his community. Take a listen. So today I want to talk about those people that reach us, that represent us, that are a reflection of us without ever having met us. Today's guest feels like that to me because of how his work has impacted how I look at myself in the world, and also how I look at that very same world. You've probably seen Yolo Akili Robinson's writings about mental health, or maybe even heard of BEAM, the Black Emotional and Mental Health Collective. But after reading his work and following him, I wanted to learn more about the person behind it all. I wanted to hear his story, because before he became the resource to so many people that he is, Yolo was hurt a lot by people that he loved. And like most of us, he has had to learn how to pick himself up, how to heal from sexual and emotional abuse, and how to forgive those in his life. Not an easy journey for anyone. But to get to that, we have to start at the beginning, his early life. I was born in Fort Lauderdale, Florida,
1: I am the child of military father who spent 40 years in the military and retired to go back and work for the military. <laughs> and a, a mother who um, has been in education for, I think most of her life. They came from a background, which we are still discovering a lot of their background. For example, my mother didn't know her father very well, but we're discovering he's from St. Kitts, via Haiti, via DR, and so that's a big part of the kind of heritage trends that I'm holding as a Southerner, but also with a Caribbean like um, heritage. I lived all over the United States in the world, lived in Germany until I was um, in fifth grade and came back to the South. One thing that is really curious about military bases in foreign countries, particularly in Germany, is while there was racism without a doubt, there was the ways in which our kind of connection as Americans influenced the dynamics of race differently. So I just remember coming back to Augusta, Georgia, which is deep South, home of James Brown. And, you know, I remember like going to the cafeteria in my earliest memory and sitting at the table with white kids, right? Like, you know, and not thinking much about it because that was kind of the experience I had in Germany. And, um, you know, this white kid is saying to me, you can't sit here, you, you need to go sit with the black kids. And I remember being like, oh, wow. And then because of the way I spoke, because I had been living in a military base, I didn't have a southern accent, I had like you know this point was speaking the way I'd been taught and going to the black kids table and they' being like, why do you talk like that? I didn't have a drawl at that point, which I have a little bit more now, you know So it was an adjustment, you know, coming back and like and culturally I was behind, right? My parents were big into music, but like, you know, you didn't have the internet. So the things you were listening to, by the time we got to the States, they were like, nobody's checking for MC Hammer. I really need you to do something (laughs) different with your life. So the way I dressed, the music I thought was interesting. In Augusta, I was like an alien walking around like, what is going on? And for years, it took me a while to adjust.
0: It's hard to think of someone that's so confident feeling like an outsider, an alien, And it's especially hard to think about the timing of all of this during those formidable years of manhood, where we are growing into our own. The influence the military played on Yolo's early life, his father in particular, was hard. Because on the one hand, you had a father that only wanted to protect his son, wanted to make a good man of him. But on the other, Yolo had these feelings of repression, where the discipline was just too much.
1: I think it's important to get the context that my father comes from, like, you know, a very uh, difficult background, you know, and the military for him was this beacon for him of hope. It gave him discipline. It gave him structure. My father... Grew up in environments like many black men or many men do, really seeing the qualities and traits that I was gravitating towards and expressing the softness, the kind of uh, the fluidity of my movements, the interest in arts and music, etc., as something that kind of put me in danger and it was a threat to my well-being, right? And so it was very much so like you know um, reinforced by his military upbringing, where every day he was getting that message reinscribed, and in, in many ways like was trying to put that on to me. You know, I talk about my father now. We have a great relationship, but most of my life that hasn't been the case. It was very hostile because I believe that a part of what my father was navigating was he was trying to create safety for me, but I experienced it as repression. He was trying to remove an element of my character that he saw as putting me as risk for so much violence and harm, um, as opposed to understanding this is how I'm expressing and showing up in the world, and I need to have that nurtured while also cultivating safety and protection for me. Yeah, it was, it was rough. My dad, we have a joke now we laugh about, Um. he was very big about yard work and just kind of like, you know, making things meticulous. And so my father, who did not understand landscaping because he just kind of was starting to become middle class, you know, he got these white rocks that he decided to put all around the outside of the house that he bought, <laughs> and he wanted to keep them white, but he didn't know to put a tarp underneath it so the dirt won't be there, right? So he would have <laughs> us wash the rocks weekly. We would get a wheelbarrow and wash the rocks to put them back on the dirt which makes no sense.
0: How did you begin to find yourself in this tension with your father who's trying to kind of very militantly take this out of you, but you began to know that this wasn't going away anyway. This is actually you. And how do you find love between a father when you know that he's at his heart trying to protect you, but also hurting you? When they're saying, I'm so scared for you, They're speaking
1: as survivors of gendered patriarchal violence. They remember, and some part of them knows the softness they once had access to or maybe didn't have access to in the same way they do now. They remember what it felt to have that attacked and belittled and destroyed. And sometimes, as survivors of that trauma, the only thing they can think of is like, let me do it to you first, because the world's gonna do it to you to protect you from the other folks doing it to you. And that's the logic, that's the coping strategy, right? And that's what they see. And just like a lot of trauma, it doesn't always get um, examined in a way that helps expand the possibilities of how we could respond to this.
0: So, here is Yolo trying to be himself in this very strict, very tough love household. And learning a little more about his upbringing helps me understand how he can connect with people through his work, see the other side, so to speak. Take his spoken word album, Purple Galaxy, for example. This is a 15-track piece reflecting on himself, his queerness, his heritage, his identity. And yet it touched so many people, and not just queer Black men, but cis Black men and women. And I wanted to know more about one poem in particular, we are not the kind of boys we want, which was such a powerful account of self-expression and awareness.
1: Around the time I was working in an LGBT community center in Atlanta, and so much of the themes that came up and that I also was struggling with was the ways in which that, like, as men who were not, like, you know, super butch and, like, all the time or who had a fluidity to their expression— that we weren't as desirable. And I began to think about what does it mean to not be the kind of boy that you want? Like what does it mean to be so much disdain when you see someone who moves the way you move and your response is to like yuck them and be like, ugh, and disgusted at them. What does that look like? I um, did a video where I went in Piedmont Park and I literally was out with a random camera and asking people, you know, would you date you? Are you the kind of boy you want? And I got so many responses from all these different Black queer people um, really kind of like grappling with that and thinking like, well, no, I would never date myself, but wait, why wouldn't I? And it was such a beautiful moment to kind of reflect on why we would not find ourselves desirable. They say in astrology, like, you know, the symbol for Venus is a hand mirror, right? And Venus being the symbol of love, you know, what does it mean that like desire starts with us? Desire starts with us like finding ourselves desirable and attractive and how that's disrupted when we don't have that because of homophobia, transphobia, etc.
0: I love that you brought up the mirror and asking people if they would date themselves. In Greek mythology, there is a person named Narcissus, and he was so infatuated with his uh, beauty that he... There's different interpretations. I will say he drowned himself. Other people say he starved to death because he was so in love with himself. People have taken this idea and said, well, it's because he was queer, and like that's the only man that he could find to love him. But what people never talk about is Narcissus is a white man staring at himself. And I think white gay men, queer men especially, have been given the runway, the ability to fall in love and find love that looks a lot like them. I'm not saying it's a good love, I'm not saying it's perfect love, but they find it. And then we have a culture that really props it up. Black queer men do not. I think black people are never given that mirror to say, you are beautiful you deserve to love yourself. And it feels every time when you're telling that story, it makes me think about the cultural violence we deal with. Like we were set up (laughs) to not get there. How do you deal with hearing those stories of people saying they don't love themselves I would say that like, as Black queer people, as Black
1: trans folks, we have to create those mirrors. Whereas I think that like white men get the opportunity to see themselves so easily reflected in the world around them mm-hmm. as desirable and as wanted. We have to kind of like create the art, the shows, the the all these things to, to bring ourselves in that space. It's always hard for me to hear that Black, I mean, I'm in a different place with it now because I've heard it so much and I understand where it comes from and I understand the roots. But I will tell you that in my early days doing counseling, it used to be such a big trigger for me. I'll never forget, you know, this person is no longer with us. But I remember one time in a group, a young person saying, I know why my life never goes well. This is a Black trans person. They were like, it's because, you know, I'm not in God's favor. God doesn't favor me. And I know that's why the bad things happen to me. I know that's why I get treated this way, and I've accepted that." And that message, I heard that so much. Defining yourself desirable and lovable was something that I think that's... I know some of those young people and some, and some of those folks never got a chance to really explore, you know? Um, yeah. So it is rough. It is rough to hear
0: it. Let's sit with that for a second. I'm not in God's favor. Those five short words hold so much power, but it helps us see where that deep-rooted self-hatred can stem from within the LGBTQ community. And when we tell ourselves this, that we are destined for bad things to happen to us, things begin to snowball. That's when we start to see the secrecy, where the shame begins to manifest into violence. And that's especially true with Black trans women who are the most vulnerable when we conceal and hide who we really are and who we love.
1: I just think it's important to really center the experiences of Black trans women and how challenging that is for them to navigate these men who can be both their lovers and also potentially provide a really big threat to their livelihood. You know, for the for the men who do these terrible things, these who commit these acts of murder and violence, you know, you definitely see how it's deeply connected to, like, toxic masculinity, right? That, like, this deep fear of, I don't know who I am, and so I have to destroy you, Because to destroy you, I will somehow destroy that within myself because I can't contend with the discomfort, the um, dissonance that it produces within myself around who I think I am, right? So much of it is that fear of being found out. So much of that, that idea that like my manhood is my masculinity is the core of who I am. So now me having sex with you, me being attracted to you disrupts that very centered notion. And so if I don't have someone else helping me build a different bedrock of who I am, then the act of engaging you begins to unravel that and and me to and trying to clamor back and hold on to that i'm going to do whatever it takes to kind of reground which might mean um violence and harm so so that i can um no longer have to feel that feeling of distress you know what I mean and yeah. that's what's happening a lot all black men in this country and i would say all men but i'm gonna speak to black men have been socialized at the most terrible and disgusting thing you can be is queer or trans, right? Mm -hmm. And whether you're queer or trans or straight, you receive that message. And for a lot of straight men, or men who identify as straight, seeing us in the world represents that kind of wound that they may have received when they were told to stifle the queerness of the transness in themselves, to suffocate the softness in themselves, to suffocate the femininity. And then you see someone existing in this way that you have been beaten down for generations, and, of course, it activates that memory, that feeling of, oh, my God, like, what the hell is he doing wearing that dress? What is she doing looking like that? You know what I mean? What happened to me was I had I, I got beat up by the kids. I got beat up by my father. I got, like, assaulted, right? And that trauma, I then took that trauma on and I replicated it because i want to fit in with the guys so like now when i said instead, instead of like um honoring my softness and trying to fight for it i assimilate into this rigidity and i and i help i join the police force around softness and femininity and and gender variance right and that's what happens on the streets that's what happens in our communities so often the the inability to go internal to ask themselves wait hold on i see you and this feeling is awakened within me my response as a man has been taught that like if i destroy you i won't feel that it's like if I see a trans person or a queer person and all these feelings come up in me, but then you see them, you're like, oh, girl, work. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, the response <laughs> is about, well, something in me. But men haven't been taught to, men and masculine folks in this country have not been taught to go within and see, like, what is that disruption in me about? They've been taught to go outside and squash it so they don't have to feel it within themselves, you know? Yeah. When you're the adult 40-year-old who's having that experience and you're seeing trans queer people and you're having those emotions, you've likely gone through 40-plus years of gender socialization, which have, like, taught you to, to disconnect, to cut off, to dismember your emotional self. You know, I often tell the story about, you know, my godson and many of the kids I've loved and supported throughout my life. Um, My godson learning how to walk and, like, falling and being like, you know, like, and me coddling him and immediately his father coming in and being like, he gonna grow up to be a punk, let him cry. Like, you you gotta put him down, you know? He gotta learn how to be a man. Like, that person who's 40 years old who's on the street and sees that trans and queer person and has that emotional reaction is is often the same person who received the message as a toddler to man up and suffocate your feelings. And so now you've done that for decades. And so you don't have the emotional self-reflection because you've been taught to suppress it down. Whereas a lot of, like I say, a lot of women and femme and queer people, we often develop um, emotional self-reflexivity out of shame, um, out of being held responsible for other people's feelings, particularly women. Like you're responsible for everybody's feelings about you, or out of like safety, hypervigilance, we gotta know what people are feeling because he might be transphobic, he might be queer. So we're very cognizant of those things. Whereas when you're when you're um, you know, traditionally masculine
0: and many men, you may not develop the same faculties. Just like with his godson, YOLO's work has helped so many people, strangers and family alike, look within and be empathetic. But just like he can connect with people through his art and his work, I was curious to hear about his own story of domestic violence. Because Yolo is an artist. He's educated and introspective. And sometimes it's easy to forget that this can happen to anyone. And that is why it's so helpful to hear the stories of others. You know, one thing I say is
1: that for Black queer men, our threshold for what we understand violence to be can be very high. We're used to being in such volatile environments, whether it's with each other or just the way the world relates to us, that we don't always recognize certain dimensions of violence as violence. Because it's like, oh, he didn't hit you in the head, so it's not that bad. And it's like, well, actually, there were a lot of things happening here, right? I met a person at a point in my life where I was um, post-suicidal attempt, low self-esteem. I had um, left USC, where I started my social work degree, and felt like I failed. And I was feeling that who I was was not valuable and that I needed to be something else. And I met this person who was in a different part of their journey. We connected in a relationship. And in that relationship, they showed up in ways that they were working through their things, and I showed up in ways in which I was working through my things, you know? And I think it's so important, I try to say this consistently, because I think it's so important when we talk about domestic violence, he is not a boogeyman. Just like what I said when I when I worked in Men Stopping Violence, the men that I helped um, learn new behaviors were like our brothers, our uncles, our cousins. These were men who had learned terrible things and had sometimes done terrible things, but they were not boogeymen. They were human beings who often were survivors themselves. And so the man that I met, you know, was a survivor of a lot of violence and harm, but had developed coping strategies that replicated that harm in many really destructive and harmful ways to me. And I learned, I had learned in my life... And I showed up in that relationship the ways in which I had seen modeled by caregivers in my life, which was to be, you know, the people pleaser, which was to, like, try to please you as much, was to try to placate you, to make you, you know, as happy as much as I could. Like, you know, my father is a different man now, but my father... Was explosive. He had a temper when he was younger, and that's mm-hmm. something we all talk about. And I fell into a role that I had seen modeled, where I would assume that his anger was about me, as opposed to he needs to learn how to manage his anger. He had suffered so much harm and so much pain, and thought that if I make myself bigger, then I will not be hurt. Which is what the yelling and screaming and, and, the, and the the attacking is about. Like I feel small, so I need to make myself as big as possible and threaten you. Yeah. To, to feel safe. And so we were in a dynamic that was really, um, you know, toxic and really volatile, and a lot of terrible things happened. And, you know, um, it's not one of my proudest moments in my life. I recognize the ways in which I played into that dynamic, the ways in which I could have left. But I also see how my trauma kept me engaged. It was a really difficult time for me. I realized how much me and him were living in shame. And how that shame was propelling that entire dynamic and i often tell the story too that like i started going to therapy and i never forget the biggest shift that changed that relationship was when i was in therapy and she sat down and she asked me to close my eyes and go through this practice where she was like i want you to imagine yourself as a little child and what you're feeling right now as a little child in yourself and i saw myself as this little child who was just kind of crying in the corner who was just really hurt and scared and afraid, she instructed me to imagine myself as an adult going to pick up that child and protect that child Mm -hmm. and protecting that child from the experience they were having, which in my vision was that person's temper, that person's volatility, that person's rage. And I imagined myself standing up to that person. And as I did that, that person's face faded into my father's face, which Mm -hmm. was... Such a deep psychological thing for me, like because it was really showing the ways in which I was reliving the pattern that I had seen imprinted, where I was trying to please a man the way I try to please my father, as opposed to knowing this man needs to get help that is not about me.
0: What are some reasons you see people make rationale they make to stay in these cycles?
1: There are so many reasons that people stay in abusive relationships, and they're all connected to so many different things, from capitalism to economics to fear to real desirability, to, to their own kind of um, psyche and the things they're navigating. And I think that um, for folks who, you know, if you're listening and you find yourself in that space, because I've been there, you know, and I've been in that space where I'm asking myself, why am I still here? And and having an intellectual understanding of why I'm still here, but still, but i mean, like, you should leave, but still there, because my body's in it, and I don't have community support to help move me beyond it, you know? I think that, like, one thing that happens for a lot of folks who are going through that and trying to figure their way through it and trying to find out how love feels for them until they get abandoned by their friends and their loved ones and they get isolated further by that person in that relationship, which is not helpful. What a lot of us who are in those dynamics need sometimes is someone to be present with us, not from a place of shaming, but from a place of this is happening and I love you and I care for you. I'm going to be here for you. I want different for you. And I'm here to support you And how that can happen when you're ready or however we can support you in that piece. I got that at some point, but I didn't have that for a lot of part of that journey, you know? And I think that a lot of our folks who are struggling don't have that for a lot of reasons. And the risk of being killed, particularly for women. I don't don't have a lot of data for that for queer men and trans women, but, like, for cis women, we know that, like, the likelihood of getting killed after you leave goes up. Yeah, The threat of violence goes up, right? So there's, like, this real deep-seated fear. And I think that, like, when we shift the focus onto why does he do that and why does his community allow him to do that? Because yeah. we all know folks, and we have known folks who are like, he is abusive emotionally, physically. And we don't, we still learning how to intervene, how to support. Like a lot of times, and you know, I've done a lot of these kind of like transformative justice spaces, and people will think that like, I want to be loyal to my friend, so I want to deny that he's really capable of doing that. And I have to tell people that like, being loyal to your friend is saying, I love you, I'm here for you, and I'm here to help mm-hmm. you reveal your behaviors and your choices, and help you stop any patterns that are creating harm for you or for any. Anyone else, and that is loyalty, and that is love. It's not denying that you that oh he's a good person. It's not about good and bad people. It's about people who have coping strategies and and tactics they have developed to survive or cope with a variety of different things. And I think we need to we need to help people understand that loyalty is intervention, is saying I see this and I want you to stop this behavior, as opposed to like you're too good and you could never do that, which is not helpful.
0: I love this idea of accountability as loyalty because Yolo is beyond loyal to his community, to his family, to himself. I wanted to know more about Beam and why he decided to create this space and show up with love and support in this way. So, you know, as the executive director of BEAM, which is the Black Emotional
1: Mental Health Collective, you know, our organization is really focused on mental health broadly, but we definitely address, of course, the intersections of HIV, of Mm -hmm. substance use, of transphobia, and all these different dimensions. You know, um, my first work was in queer communities doing any kind of peer counseling or counseling work. And so, of course, HIV, you know, um, was always a present topic. And one of the things that was always a constant theme was the ways in which people who were um, either newly diagnosed or navigating um, living with HIV felt that living with HIV diminished their worth or their value as human beings,
0: mm-hmm. made
1: them less than. And that was, that was hard for me because one of my core wounds is around worthiness, around being good enough and less than. And um, seeing how that belief and the and HIV stigma continue to perpetuate that belief, it really became like an activating piece for me to be, for my friends, for myself, for my community, to really change the narrative that like, you know, living with HIV and worthy, right? Like, you know what I mean? That like, that this, this is not a reflection of our worth or our value. This is a reflection of the ignorance of the world that we live in, right? And I think that w- and like seeing so many young queer people that I've lost because other ways of the stigma taught them that their lives were invaluable and they stopped taking medication or they stopped caring for themselves, seeing the ways in which it had just um, disrupted so much opportunities for love and intimacy and in other queer folks' life and my own life, you know, it was always pivotal for me, for me to make sure that we were always explicit about educating around HIV and AIDS and supporting people living with HIV around the real mental health challenges that the stigma brings in this country.
0: You know, Yolo, you, as I'm thinking about what I'm taking away from our conversation today, it it just brings me to this idea that, you know, young Zach, little Zach, who was so afraid of people seeing me, seeing me swish or seeing me, like, be too black and white space, all these things that, like, I wish I could go back and say, no, 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 be seen, be your full self, show up, and that's where you will find happiness. And it feels like your work is so much about telling people that, sure, you may have been through a domestic violence situation, but, like, show up and be seen in that. Sure, you may have an HIV-positive status. Show up. It's okay. It's okay, it's okay, okay, you are okay. And I just want to thank you for that. Talking with Yolo is such a breath of fresh air, because despite everything he's been through, all his work, all the support he brings to others that are in dark and desolate places, he is still so hopeful.
1: I'm hopeful because I know that a lot of us, the world that we want is here in small pockets. I'm hoping that we can make it bigger and larger. And I and I know I've seen I've had the opportunity to be in a community across the country with so many black and brown healers doing dope work. I know I know another world is possible. I feel it. It's here. And so I know that for black queer men, for black non-binary folks, for black trans women, we can feel differently in our bodies and so we can be loved and supported. It takes practice and it takes failure mm-hmm. and it takes effort. But I know it because I've seen it and I've lived it and I'm a product of it,
0: you know? And would it be the Purple Galaxy that you (laughs) write and think about?
1: (laughs) We'll see if it's, maybe it's Purple Galaxy. I don't know what it is, but I imagine it's a lot of different visions from a lot of different folks that we just kind of share, co-craft and
0: co-create. For me as a visual person, the idea that uh, queer, Black, freedom, equity, you know, just peace is a Purple Galaxy. I think it's a beautiful idea. As a writer, philosopher, and community leader, Yola creates space with so much love and care. But it's his story that stands out the most because he was raised with these values that I think a lot of us were raised in, with people and in homes that try their best to protect us. And it's interesting to see that despite those efforts, for better or worse, he was still hurt in ways that are terrible, in ways that no person should be hurt. But although this pain marked him deeply, I love the idea that we can touch others through our own stories, even if they're not pretty. Yolo's work has reached and connected with people far outside the LGBTQ community, and it shows that the issues of violence, pain, mental and physical health are not unique to a specific group. And it offers a new idea or way of thinking that if pain can be this universal, this familiar, then maybe, just maybe, the healing journey can be similar too. We are so excited for you to be here for season two of In The Deep, Stories That Shape Us. Keep coming back every other week and take in these powerful stories of Black and Latinx people as they take us on their own healing journeys. In the Deep: Stories That Shape Us is executive produced by myself, Zach Stafford, and Yvonne Sheehan, and mastered by James Foster. And our writer is Yvette Lopez. A shout out to our guest, Yolo Akili Robinson.